Isaiah 53, we're going to go to verses 10 to 12, and we're going to see the fruition of the gospel of Isaiah, basically in Isaiah 53, referred to as the very first gospel by many theologians. Today we're going to look at these verses, we're going to see where they lead us and what they mean. We're going to hear some quotes from some very prominent um, uh, theologians and pastors, and then we're going to see a quote today, hopefully, Lord willing, if we have time, about basically what the current secular world thinks about the resurrection of Christ. And it's become nothing more than a diverse matter of opinion instead of a standard and a bottom line foundational principle in our lives as Christians. So in Isaiah chapter 53, verses 10 to 12, Isaiah finishes up the chapter by proclaiming, Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He hath put him to grief. When thou shalt make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed, he shall prolong his days. And the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. He shall see of the travail of his soul and shall be satisfied. By his knowledge shall my righteous servant justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore will I divide him a portion with the great. And he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he hath poured out his soul unto death. And he was numbered with the transgressors. And he bare the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressions, transgressors. Where is the resurrection in these verses? You don't see the word resurrection. You don't see the term he is risen or he arose. This is why we need to get in and we need to pull this out. We need to study this and we need to take it like it's some kind of a code, an, encrypt, an encrypted code and try to unravel it. It's no code. It's very plain. The very fact that Christ died and it says he was despised, he was rejected, he was his visage is back in chapter 52, verse 14 says, As many were astonished at thee, his visage was so marred more than any man. If he's dead, how can he make intercession for transgressors? Think about that. If he's able to make intercession physically for transgressors, he can't be doing it while he's dead. He has to be alive. He has to be risen. It's so important for us to hold on to that. We see back in the prophecy here of Isaiah, he's guaranteeing the first advent of our Lord Jesus Christ. And this happens oh, at least 800 years before Christ actually arrives here on this earth. And it's amazing to see the detailed, inspired word of God through Isaiah. And this detail is an extension from the book of John and all the Gospels of an infallible proof that this actually happened. And we're going to see a quote today that is going to be very fascinating, I think. Here we learn from this passage. We see that Jesus' own people would not even be ready for him. In John 1, verses 9 through 11, that he was the true light, which lighteth every man that cometh into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made by him, and the world knew him not. He came unto his own, and his own received him not, even his very own. He's despised and rejected of men. He was born in a borrowed manger, a cradle, Luke chapter 2, 7. He had, he had nowhere to lay his head. Matthew 8.20, remember the Lord said, the foxes have holes and the birds have their nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. He was buried in a borrowed tomb, Luke 23.53, crucified on a tree. Cursed, going back to Deuteronomy 21.23, cursed is every man that's hanged on a tree. With all of this, this is all leading to the coronation of our Lord Jesus Christ. Our Lord enters into the world. He leaves it with a most humble example. The question, this just chapter starts off with a question. 
Who hath believed our report? Do you think you can answer that today? Do you think you can answer this question today? Do you see that in other people? Do you think that they believe this report? Do they have any questions about it? If you read some of the, if you read some of the updated quotes about the resurrection, you go back in the last hundred years, you wouldn't believe how many scientists and theologians question whether he, Christ actually resurrected or not. Well, if Christ, if you speak to somebody and they say that Christ never re- resurrected, it's very easy to say to them, well, if he never resurrected, then you're never going to resurrect. But if he did resurrect and you don't believe it, it'd be better off that you didn't resurrect <laughs> because of what's going to lie at the end. That's how serious this is. There's no in-between on this. There's absolutely no neutrality on this whatsoever. We see here, he shall see of the travail of his soul. And that's a fruition back in verse, we see in verse 10, it pleased the Lord to bruise him. How did it please the Lord to bruise our Lord Jesus Christ? You know what, it kind of, if you want to put it this way, this is my opinion, this is not anything written or anything. My opinion is, I think that that has a connection to why Friday is called, the Friday before Easter is called Good Friday. Because we try to talk about that some Friday evening, what was good about it for Christ? Do you think that would be a good day for you if you were pulled in in a kangaroo court you were unjustly tried and you knew you were going to be crucified for doing nothing. And then the good part about it is, Christ does it because He, in His heart and in His being, knew that it was not just good, but it was transcendent and wonderful that He would shed that blood to save us from our sins so that we would not have to endure that eternal damnation. That's the good part. This is how it pleased the Lord. It pleased the Lord God Almighty to sacrifice His Son for us, His only begotten Son, and have to literally disconnect Himself while Christ is on the cross, and Christ cries out, My God, My God, why hast Thou forsaken Me? In, a, in one of the most incredible Hebraisms in Scripture, He cries it out twice. Why hast Thou forsaken Me? Did God really forsake His Son? No, but because of our sins, we created the only disconnect in all of eternity between the Father and the Son. We did that with our sin. All of us. All we, all we like sheep have gone astray. That's earlier on also. He hath put him to grief. He hung him on the cross. When thou shalt make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed and he shall prolong his days and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. What does it say in Psalm 1? Lisey, go ahead. That's right. Right. 
That's right. Right? Right. But we right away look into a sadly the church in general I'm talking about looks into worldly comfort of some sort. Right. So I think today pure obedience rather than right. I have been told by many people over the years who have sat in the Sunday school class and don't please don't get me wrong, I'm not saying anything at all about my presence here at all. I am saying from others that have heard the correspondence in this class, from others that have heard the biblical discussion regarding wherever we're at in Scripture through the confession, I've heard many people say that this is a very theological class with very deep doctrine. Now, I need you to remember something, that this is not, this is not a kindergarten class. This is not a teenage class, which they're very good too. I learned a lot in mine when we had them. This is an adult Sunday school class, and the reason why I bring this up is what Lisey just said here brings up a question. When you hear people saying He is risen, and you see the signs, one time a year you see crosses out in front of people's front yards, and you see all these things. Nine Filipino people in the Philippines yesterday, literally through a ritual, hung themselves on a cross and nailed themselves to it. Nine people did that. Now, people have done that in the past, and many of them died horrible deaths, because it's not something that anyone can endure easily, and it's not something to trifle with. This happened yesterday. They do it every year. The question is, where is the manifestation of He is risen? How is that manifested in our lives? I think it's amazing, because actually yesterday, I, I had an extension of this... It's like a college course also online. It's like, a, it's, it's, all, it's like a college course that I'm taking, but I'm just listening to it. But I heard a really good answer for this. So we can talk. How do we manifest this? Anyone? I mean, I would since this is an adult Sunday school class, I think we should have some understanding how we manifest this. This is an important question. Did you get a text message today that said he is risen and it's the only time you got it out of the year? Did you see any signs? Did you don't see the rest of the year? How do we manifest this? How is this woven into our Christian lives? I think it's a very important question. Well, if you have anything to say, put your hand up and we'll talk about it, but I don't want to take too much time waiting. One of the answers that I received is one of the things that you will find out. Then this is a, this is a, probably a 20 part series by Ligonier Ministries through R.C. Sproul called Keeping in Step with the Spirit, and he said, I can, I can tell you what Christianity is not. It's not being a member of a church. He said, being a member of a church does not save you. A lot of people believe that. They believe that when they, when they, when they become a member and they, they dedicate themselves to the work in the church, that that's their salvation. 
The gospel of Jesus Christ is not predicated on a work that we do. The manifestation is, it actually goes back to a sign that I saw over at Grandview Church, and I thought it was a good sign. You see a lot of goofy signs, but this one was good. And it said very plainly, don't forget that we're open between Christmas and Easter. That is a good, that is a good lead-in for what I'm about to say. Because we hear about He is risen and people get all swoony and Passion of the Christ and Mel Gibson and Jesus of Nazareth and all this time, right around this time of the year and the rest of the year, where is it? Because R.C. says, Christianity is not a possession. No. Christianity is not a profession. It's a possession. And professing that you're saved does not save you. A lot of people walk the aisle and they make these, 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 these incredible conversions, but the rest of their life they think that that saves them and that there's no more work to do. A churchless Christian is an oxymoron. That's a direct quote from R.C. He said that many years ago. A churchless Christian is an oxymoron. What does that mean? It doesn't mean just showing up. It means being woven into that church, being family, being uh, encouraging one another and getting through the hard times. And the first focus is on Christ. And then we work together to try to build the church no matter how long it takes. And you know little Bible-believing churches today, they don't, they don't last very well. I think that the Lord has blessed us incredibly here from what I've seen and I've heard in other churches. And I'm not just talking about in our presbytery. And I believe that there is a lot of possibilities when the doors are open, when we're trying to manifest what the Lord is teaching us and we're learning together, these words are the, of the quotes that I read. I read probably over 50 or 60 quotes yesterday and today about the resurrection from theologians, and they all agreed this is the single most important event that ever happened in the history of this world. What do we do with it? What is the bottom line of our existence if we have no resurrection? If there's no resurrection, what's the point? Why would we even be here? Well, you can see the seats are empty because a lot of people don't even care. I'm not talking about the people that come here, people that couldn't be here today. I'm not talking about it. I'm talking about the people you see on bicycles out here and they're filling up the ball fields. And you, you know, whatever big tournaments or ever Super Bowls or World Series on Sunday, they will be packed. But people don't even think about their resurrection. What's going to happen when their eyes close? I think they're so afraid of it, they don't want to think about it, and they just want to put it off. That's not a good procrastination. Here, this is exactly what Isaiah is telling us what's going to happen. He says he'll see the travail of his soul. He, the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. And I, Isaiah continues the subject. He says the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand, or the will of the Lord shall flourish in his ministry. Isaiah teaches us that here we find a necessary condition and a conclusion which is pivotal because the death of Christ would mean nothing to us if we didn't recognize the fruits of its labor. If we didn't recognize that He delivers us from death or experience its efficacy. Do you ever think about that? What does the word efficacy mean? Anybody? Yes. Look at the prefix. Was it efficient? Was it, was it, was there eternal value in what he did? Well, I can tell you right now, it's not a belief. It's not a faith. It's not an arbitrary, diversified opinion. It is life. 
See, you can take a belief and you can say, I believe in this. And another person can say, well, that's okay. I can believe in that. I mean, the belief that we are to have is a conclusive, unilateral focus of the epicenter of our whole being is to believe in Jesus Christ. It's what we are. It's not some arbitrary thought or some kind of belief or some kind of an opinion. That's what comes out in a lot of these quotes about the resurrection. I mean, this was put out. The question that came today that I saw this morning as I was leafing through the weather and I saw, was the resurrection real? You know, people don't even get a chance to get into doctrine because they're still answering that question. Was God real? Is God real? Is heaven real? Is the resurrection real? And they can't even get past that to, to, to talk about what's involved in it. And how the central motif of Scripture is all about salvation, resurrection. Look at the Passover. That was all about God's deliverance. And they missed that. And it's so important for us to understand that and hide it in our hearts. What was the travail of his labor? Look at the events that led up to it. He defeats Christ himself, defeats the tempter, and withstands the unfecton, which is Martin Luther called the unbridled assault of Satan in the three temptations in the wilderness, the assault of Satan and his demons in the wilderness. Christ bears the cup of wrath. He looks at it and he sees the mutilation of his body, beaten and crucified, separation from the Father, and descending of his soul into the center of the earth for three days, no wonder he sweat blood in the garden. For, no, for who? For who? Did he get paid to do this? Did he receive some celestial world that God gave him and said, listen, if you go down for these miserable people, I'll give you a whole... He already owned it all. It's all his. That's why I don't get this thing. One of the things... Oh, there's so much debate and there's so much intricate discussion and debate over the temptations of Christ. If you're a Christian and you know Christ... The temptations seem actually very idiotic. To tempt Christ, to literally for Satan, to take him on top of a mountain and to literally belittle. This to me shows how unintelligent he really is. He's crafty, he's wise, but when it comes to intelligence, to literally tell the owner and the creator of the world that I'll give you Mesopotamia, I'll give you Damascus, I'll give you Jerusalem. Remember that? Do you remember the story? That was the third temptation. He goes, you bow down to me and I'll give you the world. Christ created it. It was His. It wasn't for Satan to give. And so Christ turns around and He says, you will worship the Father and every word that comes out of His mouth. He didn't even answer that. He, didn't even, he did not even insult His own intelligence by giving some doctrinal theological lesson. He says, you will honor every word whether you think so now, sooner or later, you're going to find out who is king. You're going to find out what's going to happen. And it's only a matter of time. The unbridled assault of Satan. It was almost as Christ was laughing at him. And shall be satisfied. Wow, what a quote. Christ is going to die and the Lord will be satisfied. That is the only thing that could have ever satisfied anything. The propitiation of our sins would have been what Christ could have done for us. The question that's asked in this series that I'm listening to, what do you say if you were asked by God when you get to the front door of heaven, why should I let you into my kingdom? 
What a question. I remember the first time I heard that, and I thought to myself, wow. He asked his students for years, and he took some of the best answers, and he said 90% of them, and he said he didn't mean best as they were good responses, but they were very, very emotional answers. I'm a good person. I am inherently good. I do good things. I do wonderful things for people. I do this, I do that, I do this, I do that. And of course, you know, R.C. goes from there. He says, well, you know, many people will come to me and say, Lord, Lord, I've done this in your name, I've done that. Be gone from me, I never knew you. You know what the answer he gives? There, he said it was a two-part answer. First, he starts it off like it's a single answer. He goes, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give it another one. He said, the first answer is nothing. Only Christ. Only by the blood of Christ. And that is the answer to Matthew 5.20. I truly believe that. I will never vary from that because if I did, it would make me an, a mental, emotional wreck. Unless, you're, unless, you're, unless your righteousness exceed that of the scribes and the Pharisees, ye shall in no wise enter into the kingdom of heaven. Why were they not righteous with their righteousness? What did they do? Does anybody remember? Go over land and sea for one convert. They would give 10% of everything they had. Plus, if they had a bumper crop, they would give 10% of that. They would do all these wonderful things, phylacteries, hanging the little boxes hanging off of their robes, and they were doing all this prayer in the streets. None of it had Christ involved. And that is why the thief on the cross made it, and they didn't. The last words, Lord, and I'll bet he was bawling his eyes out, Lord, remember me this day in paradise. Uh, Lord didn't say to him, uh, your righteousness never exceeded that of the scribes and the Pharisees. I'm sorry, you're done. You can call out to me all you want. You're going to roast in hell forever. Nah, he went to Christ. And what did Christ do? He said, this day you will be with me. There wasn't even a question about that. Hanging on the cross, our Savior saved a criminal and did that. This is what this is all about. The pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in His hand. Somebody read Romans 5.19. 518 and 19, please. Look at the judgment, the condemnation, the righteousness, the free gift that's given. It's a free gift. Romans 5, 18 and 19. It took one. Thank you, Jacob. It took one to be obedient. One. If one being could perfectly fulfill the law, obey it to the letter, and never sin, that is the one person that could atone for our sins. If there was one. And before all the world was ever recreated, God knew that His Son would go to that cross. The very same mountain Isaac was, the very same mountain Isaac was taken up to be and an obedient sacrifice from Abraham, and the Lord sent a little ram in that thicket to spare Isaac, there was nothing to spare the Son of God because He's the unblemished lamb. And He did that for us. The application, and shall be satisfied as we read, it obtains the fruit of His death in the salvation of men. Those are where the fruits are. The manifestation that we believe, that we love that He has risen, comes, it, it, it oozes out of our pores. It it oozes out of our pores when we go into the doctor's office and someone is sitting there hurt and we tell them about Jesus. 
It oozes out of our pores when someone is dying and someone goes in and holds their hand and, and, and tells them about the Lord like Faith did with Mary over up at Lorien. Is that her name, Faith? It, it manifests itself when someone's broken down and you go up and you help them and they're like, why did you do this? I want to give you some money because I love you. I want you to learn about Jesus and you hand them a track. It manifests itself when a Christian brother is hurting and you're willing to bear that on your knees. It doesn't just happen on Sunday morning for two hours. It happens, it's woven throughout your week. It's woven throughout, it's in your life. And it can be on different levels. It doesn't have to be, you're not going to be, maybe you might not be a missionary in Africa. But you know what? That missionary in Africa is not going to be you taking care of your church in Kingsville either. Those are two Good, solid ministries. And I've had four ministries, four missionaries. I've listened to them many, many times, and I love listening to their message. Four of them in our, in our board has said that we're here. One of them is in Arica, Chile, and one of them stood here and said, do not leave your mission field in Kingsville. This is your mission field. And so this is how we're all connected. Paul Duran said it. Judith Collins said it. Reverend, his name, I call him Pastor Jim Buer. He refers to Reverend Jim Buer. Hal Ricker. And they love the little churches, just like we love them. Isn't that a nice connection? This is how our Lord and shall be satisfied. He is satisfied. Calvin says, He who has obtained his wish, his ultimate desire for the fruits of his labor, rests in that which he most ardently desired. For no person can be said to be satisfied, but he who has obtained that he wished so earnestly as to disregard everything else and be satisfied with this alone. And what Calvin is saying, he disregarded anything that could keep him from that cross. And Satan did everything he could to keep him from that cross. This is our most sweetest consolation. His blood paid for our sins. And by his knowledge shall my righteous servant justify many, as we read, for he shall bear their iniquities. Justify. And we could, spend, we could spend a long time on this. We are justified by the blood of Christ. There is no way, no way that we can atone for our sins. This is why it is so hard to witness to a Roman Catholic. It is so hard to do that, but you do it. There are ways to do it. I think you ask questions like Jesus did. You be as kindly affectionate and as loving and as patient as you ever can because the tradition has them so emboldened in going to other people for their atonement and for their, their freedom of sins that they, go, they don't even know to go to Jesus personally. They think that getting on their knees and doing it, and, and just it's, isn't it so wonderful and easy to be able to go into your own office or your house and not have to go down to a confessional box to a guy who's most likely dying in his sins and sit there and wait in line all night and give money and to sit there and embarrass yourself by telling them things you don't want them to hear? Those are the things you take to Christ. That's why unspoken prayer requests are so... There, there's a word for that. They're so, not substantive, they're so, uh, there's a better word for that. They're so important. It's because we're taking them to Christ. And that's why it's so important. Everywhere, where in Isaiah 53 do we learn that we take any of our beliefs and our love for Christ anywhere else outside of Him? Where? It all focuses on Him. This is our sweetest consolation. Here we see the word justify in these verses. It says here, 
He shall see of the travail of the soul and shall be satisfied. By his knowledge shall my righteous servant justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. This verse tells me that we're going to see a lot more people in heaven than we think. You know, I hear all these doomsday prophets. There's only going to be 144,000 people. No. I think we're going to be so overwhelmed by who we see there, and we're going to have some kind of an understanding of it. And better than anything we can have here on this earth, I think we're not even going to be able to think about anything negative or sinful, because the Lord says we're not. But we're going to be, I think it's going to be manifestly, incredibly, just wonderful of how many. He said he'll justify many. Well, what did God say to Abraham? I'm going to give you a seed, and it's going to be like the stars of the sky and the sands of the sea. That doesn't say there that it's going to be so spotty that there's hardly anybody going to be let in heaven. I think we're going to be incredibly, wonderfully um, encouraged and blessed to see that. The pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. I skipped over that. I just want to say that goes back to me. I believe that Psalm 1 is a pure 100% messianic prophecy that many miss. You don't hear this being called a messianic prophecy. All right, the first three verses. Blessed is the man that walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor standeth in the way of sinners, nor sitteth in the seat of the scornful. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law doth he meditate day and night. And he shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water that bringeth forth his fruit in his season. His leaf also shall not wither, and whatsoever he doeth shall prosper. And it says the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. This is a direct connection to that prophecy. Everything Christ ever did prospered. What can you ever say that wilted when Christ was around? Well, I'll tell you this. He never once preached a funeral. Not one time. Not one. Every, every funeral he ever went to. What if the widow of Nain? They were in the middle of a funeral procession. Pastor Coleman just brought it up last week. The widow of Nain's son, they had him dead. And back then, you carry the body over your head and you carry it down to a grave, which was hard to dig because there's a lot of rock there. And they spent all this time digging the grave. You, you, you cover the body and you, you, you basically wrap it. You carry it over your head. They're the pallbearers and they take that young man down, place him in a hole and cover him over with rocks and dirt. So he's on his way. The woman is in abject sorrow. She's crying. She's bawling. Her whole life has been ripped apart. Her husband's gone. And Jesus turns around and he, oh, it's, it's amazing how he would always kind of act surprised. It almost was like he was act like he had no idea what was going on when he did. And maybe he didn't even act like that, but just people took it that way because we're so used to that. And he comes up and he says, that little boy, get him down here right now. Put him on the ground. He coughs. He's alive. He raises it from the dead. And what did they say? There is a prophet amongst us. Oh, much more than a prophet. And what did he do? He raised him from the dead. That was a funeral procession. He was at Lazarus' funeral. That was a funeral procession. You ever been to a funeral procession where your loved one's there and all of a sudden they start banging on the top of the coffin and they start running out of it? It happened with Jesus. Well, justify. Christ justified. He was the justifier. By faith are you saved through grace, and not of yourself. This is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. We're not justified by dying. We're justified by the blood of Jesus Christ. 
Psalm 1 tells us to meditate upon it day and night. It makes us inexcusable for God, but it does not have the power to save us, the law. It was Christ who had the power to save us by the fruition and the fulfillment of the law. We are made righteous through our faith in Jesus Christ. Our faith cometh from His teaching, not by the law, which is a mirror of His righteousness. In Galatians 2.16 we read, Knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by the faith of Jesus Christ, even we have believed in Jesus Christ, that we might be justified by the faith of Christ and not by the works of the law, for by the works of the law shall no flesh be justified. You go to Galatians 3, 10 to 12, for as many as are of the works of the law are under the curse, for it is written, Cursed is everyone that continueth not in all things which are written in the book of the law to do them. But no man, but that no man is justified by the law in the sight of God. It is evident for the just shall live by faith. That goes back, that goes back to Habakkuk, Habakkuk chapter 2. That's a prophecy. And the law is not of faith, but the man that doeth them shall live in them. It's faith. Faith is the substance. It's substantive. It's the thing hoped for the evidence of things not seen. And faith is so important. What these three verses all are pointing to is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's why he, it's how Christ got there. It's, it's a heavenly view of how the Father has made it very clear how he, it's, it's the pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand. And he loves this. And I have five, here's five of the quotes regarding the resurrection this morning. And I hope you enjoy these because I love them. First of all, I've got the quote that you probably never heard of this man. I want to explain him to you just in a real little capsule here. Has anybody ever heard of a man named Edward McKendry Bounds? Popularly known as E.M. Dr. E.M. Bounds. You heard of him, Faith? What period? You remember when he lived? It's very, he, he wrote a book on hell and I read it and it's riveting. Wonderful book. You would think it's all fire and brimstone. I love fire and brimstone. I love it. And I, that book was so wonderful and he read it while he was imprisoned, taken away from his family and his regiment in the civil, I hate that word, the war between the states. He was taken to Missouri and he was putting, he was a chaplain of the Southern Army with Lee and Jackson and he was taken out to Missouri. He was put in there in prison and he wrote these books. Here's what he said about the resurrection. The houses of heaven are God-built and are as enduring and incorruptible as their builder. We still have bodies after the resurrection. Transfigured they will be after the model of Christ's glorious body. And that is his wonderful quote. He says, we still have bodies after the resurrection. Transfigured they will be after the model of Christ's glorious body. That's something to look forward to. Wouldn't you love to have the model of Christ's body and be part of that? Here's from Charles Spurgeon. The resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead is one of the best attested facts on record. There were so many witnesses to behold it that if we do in the least degree receive the credibility of men's testimonies, we cannot and we dare not doubt that Jesus rose from the dead. Charles Spurgeon. I think that's incredible. R.C. The resurrection was God the Father's way of authenticating all of the truths that were declared by Jesus. Here's Martin Luther. The cross is the victory. The resurrection is the triumph. The resurrection is the public display of the victory and triumph of the crucified one. And how could I leave out John MacArthur? The truth of the resurrection gives life to every other area of gospel truth. 
The resurrection is the pivot on which all of Christianity turns and without which none of the other truths would much matter. Without the resurrection, Christianity would be so much wishful thinking taking its place alongside all other human philosophy and religious speculation. What does that mean? It means our God is not rotting in a grave. Every other, every other God, all the deities that were self-proclaimed, they're all rotting in graves with dead men's bones, all of them. You know what? There was another quote that I did not write down. I wish I had, but MacArthur, he carries this further, and he says, this is amazing, down through the centuries, there have been many that have questioned the resurrection, but they have never once. I've never heard it. He never heard it. I've never read it. Maybe you never read it. Never called the apostles a liar. They've never called people that profess this resurrection a liar. They've never said that it's a lie. They like to make all kinds of things up about it. Verse 12, Therefore will I divide him a portion with the great, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he hath poured out his soul unto death. Well, Christ in John 17, 19 says, And for their sakes I sanctify myself, that they also might be sanctified through the truth. What is truth? That's what Pilate asked. What is truth? This is the truth that we're giving this morning, the efficacy of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's the truth, the way, the truth, and the life. Here Christ defeats death, the world, and Satan. Isaiah praises the victory which follows the death of Christ. His portion is from the Father, and it's the victory over His enemies. Our Savior is triumphant over death, and He is risen by the power of the Holy Spirit. And see how all through this wonderful resurrection, the whole Trinity is involved constantly. The Lord God Almighty makes His enemies His footstool. Psalm 110.1 our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ reigns forever and ever and does what? He divides the spoil with the strong. Psalm 68, 18. Can someone look that up? Psalm 68, 18. Beautiful. Thank you, Faith. He has led captivity captive. Think about that. What did Christ say? He that is free is free indeed. He divides the spoil with the strong. The spoil. Look what He did when he, the people of Israel. He pulled them out of 400 years of abject captivity. And what did He do? He gave them the spoil. What happened when one angel went in there and knocked down 185,000 Assyrians that were going to kill the Jerusalem, kill the Israelites, they woke up the next morning and they took all of their spoil. They took their gold, their silver. They had everything that was laying there. The Lord said, go ahead and take it. And they did. They took it all. And He divides the spoil with the strong. What is the spoil? It's the efficacy of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. He divides that gift and gives us a resurrection. Without it, what are we worth? Without it, what is Christianity worth? We'll go back to one of the prominent quotes that we, just, that we just read. I want to read Charles Spurgeon one more time. The resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead is one of the best attested facts on record. There were so many witnesses to behold it that if we do in the least degree receive the credibility of men's testimonies, we cannot and we dare not doubt that Jesus rose from the dead. Charles Spurgeon. I, I think that's a very, very important quote. 
He poured out his soul unto death. John 10, 11. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd giveth his life for the sheep. What a shepherd. He commits his spirit to the Father. In Luke 23, 46, he cries to the Father, Into thy hands I commend my spirit. And we read, He was numbered with the transgressors, and He bare the sins of many. In this part of this verse, it shows Christ's humiliation. Mark chapter 15, verses 27 and 28, we read, And with Him they crucified two thieves, the one on His right hand and the other on His left. And the Scripture was fulfilled which saith, He and He was numbered with the transgressors. You know that Isaiah was quoted over 65 times in the, in the New Testament? We talk about those that try to abrogate and they try to push out the Old Testament. We now have a gospel theology that the Old Testament doesn't count. When Isaiah was the most quoted prophet in the, in the New Testament, Paul quoted him over and over and over again. Christ himself did. Verse 12, he made intercession with the transgressors. This is the fruition of his resurrection. He could not intercede if he was dead. Can Pharaoh intercede for any of his people now? Can Joseph Stalin intercede for anybody? Confucius? And all these self-proclaimed deities down through the centuries, can they intercede? Can they bear the sins of many? No, they're dead. They can't do anything. But Christ, what does it say here? He made intercession for the transgressors. And this is after all the description Isaiah gives of his death, burial, and resurrection. He's alive. Yes, He is. And it's sad that you only hear that one time a year from many people. He's alive every day. Christ makes intercession while He's on this earth. We see here that He sits on the right hand of the Father. And in conclusion, we see and we go back that He enters into the world in a borrowed cradle, nowhere to lay His head, blasphemed, Buried in a borrowed tomb, walked out of the wall of that tomb, and he rose from the dead. I have some verses I want to close out with, but I want to read one of the questions that came up this week. Once again, as we talked about about 15 minutes ago, how today we're in such a doctrinal, uh, doctrinal drought and famine that all that can really be brought up about religion anymore in mainstream is just asking if it's real or not. You don't even get into the efficacy of it. Don't get into the leading up of the resurrection. What is the fulfillment of the law? What are the doctrines of Christ? What are the questions in the confession? You don't even hear about that. All it is is, is heaven real? Is God real? I still haven't heard, is hell real? We need to hear that. But was Jesus raised from the dead? Here's one of the questions that have come up in a popular, very popular uh um, modern well, social media idiot rant. But according to the Christian tradition, Jesus was raised from the dead on the third day after his crucifixion, which is known as Easter Sunday. This event is known as the resurrection and is considered to be one of the central doctrines of Christianity. Well, thank you for that. I appreciate that. The resurrection is recounted in the Gospels of the New Testament which describe how Jesus' followers found his tomb empty and how he appeared to them over a period of 40 days the resurrection is also mentioned in several other New Testament books as well as in early Christian creeds and writings. The resurrection, and here's the final conclusion on this question, there's two questions, was Jesus raised from the dead? The resurrection is a matter of faith for Christians and its historical veracity has been a topic of debate among scholars for centuries. While some scholars have argued that the resurrection is a myth or a legend, 
Others have pointed to the eyewitness accounts and other evidence in support of its historicity. Ultimately, the question of whether Jesus was raised from the dead is a matter of faith and belief, and each individual must make up their own determination based on their own understanding and interpretation of the available evidence. How do you make up your mind over something that's perfectly true? We can opinionate that. We can like you know, paint it up and make it something it's not. Because what this is saying, if you read the whole article, it's basically... It's not just the Bible that can talk about the efficacy or the truth of this. It's also the scholars have a say in it also. And some of them say it's not real. So it depends on how it all comes down to that wicked word that's everywhere now, diversity. Are you diverse? If you love Jesus, well, that's your faith and that's your Jesus. But basically, this is as far as it goes. And so here's the other question. Are people who believe that Jesus was raised from the dead misinformed? Well, it says, to make value judgments on matters of faith or belief is basically in the eyes of the beholder. People who believe in the resurrection of Jesus do so based on their own personal faith and interpretation of the available evidence. There are varying viewpoints among scholars and historians regarding the historicity of the resurrection, and these viewpoints are often influenced by factors such as one's religious or philosophical beliefs one's interpretation of historical evidence, and one's acceptance of supernatural events. However, it is important to respect and acknowledge the diversity of religious and philosophical beliefs and to engage in constructive dialogue and mutual understanding. So as Christians, is it our responsibility to respect diversity and to respect philosophical views that tear down the truth of Christ? No. I don't believe it is. Because this is why I, this is my evidence. This is just a little teeny tiny scratch on the mountain of infallible truths we have about Christ. Romans 1 4. Well, why don't we take turns and read some of these verses? We got a couple minutes. This is Easter Sunday. I mean, we could spend a little extra time, can't we? How about Dave? Romans 1 4. Lisi, Romans 6 5. How about Charlie? 1 Corinthians 15 12. How about Jacob? 1 Corinthians. 1521. If you don't remember your verse, just ask me. I have it right here, okay? Romans 1 4, Dave. Perfect evidence. Romans 6 5. Mm hmm. Incredible. 1 Corinthians 15, 12, Charlie? And this is, thank you, Charlie, this is what Paul, he spoke to the Sadducees about this. How can you say that there's no resurrection of the dead? I mean, the proof is there. Paul even said it. He, he had given a a wonderful um, um, series of evidence leading all the way up to these verses that Christ resurrected from the dead. 1 Corinthians 15, 21. Jacob? Amen. 1 Corinthians 15, 42. So also is the resurrection of the dead. It is sown in corruption. It is raised in incorruption. Philippians 3.10, that I may know Him and the power of His resurrection and the fellowship of His sufferings being made comfortable unto His death. 
And in Philippians 3.11, if by any means I might attain unto the resurrection of the dead. Paul loved the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And, and every day was Easter for Paul. Because <laughs> he was preaching it every day. The gospel. Pastor. Right. So even as Paul would have gone to Mars Hill and preached to those who had great scholarship and so forth, he's really only presenting one point of view. Right. Even as today, amongst the many that we have, we present one point of view. Uh, their acceptance of it is the work of the Holy Spirit. That's right. Amen. So uh, we realize how, how glorious it is that we know truth and that we can present it, but it's not up to us to be able to twist arms and you know, break fingers or make lawsuits to make you believe. Right. Uh, and, and things haven't changed. It's more than one uh, man, because of his very nature, is still blind. Amen. Perfect. And that's the whole objective. The question in the beginning of the class was, what is the manifestation of our belief in He is risen? And is it that we know these truths? We have one truth, do we know it, and do we use it? Will people, can we save other people? Of course not. What did Paul say? Apollos is watered. I have watered Apollos. I have planted Apollos is watered, but who gives the increase? Right? Amen. So, well, this is, I think, is a good lead-in for the service, Lord willing, this morning as we honor the Lord's resurrection today. So let's finish with a prayer. Pastor Coleman, would you close us this morning? Thank you.